and this is back to the degeneracy thing, we have this mentality of dry that's like, well, somebody else already built some component. So don't repeat that work, right? So reuse whatever you can reuse. The problem is you've just increased complexity because now you have a dependency on some third-party control that in turn might have other dependencies and you don't really know what that looks like. And if you're talking about a day of work to build it the first time, you're probably talking about a day of work to rebuild it if you did it wrong. And so From Seven CTOs, my name is Etienne De Bruin and you're in the CTO studio. Welcome to the CTO studio. We are going back in time again to just right in the middle of the pandemic, 2020, when I spoke with my good friend, Aaron Longwell. What a brilliant mind. And we talked about left brain, right brain, doing work as a means of discovery, when simple concepts unravel in the C-suite. And at the time, he was building the legal software system in Afghanistan, which, as we all know, went to hell in a handbasket a few years later with the withdrawal of the U.S. forces. Okay, so I said that. So I hope you enjoy, Aaron, and we will see you on the flip side. Welcome to the CTO <laughs> studio, brother. Thank you. It's good to it's good to be back. Yeah, it's been years. It's been more than a year. It's been two years. Two years ago, we would have said to each other, "Man, you know what? If there was a situation when the whole planet was wearing masks, yeah, we'd be like, that's not possible. No, it's not going to happen. How does that fit into your regression models? A lot of people have asked me that, and I think the one that really stands out for me, I just watched that totally under control documentary. There's a lot of talk in there about failings in the supply chain for PPE. And that looks to me like a local optimization problem where we had highly optimized supply chains that brought swabs in from the Lombardy region of Italy and prices went, got cheaper and cheaper. They got better and better in doing it, but it's ultimately a risk. It's a local optimization that's not best in the long run so sometimes inefficiency is better than efficiency when you want to survive. I think that's the biggest thing I've drawn out of it is that there's a lot of good examples of companies that were over-optimized or systems that were over-optimized and that ended up not being good in the long run. Which is sort of your mantra, right? It's the nature has a lot of redundancy in order to pick the best path. Mm -hmm. And humans went and said, no, 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 we need to highly optimize to a single path. Yeah, I haven't thought about it this way, but maybe a way to summarize a lot of what I've been thinking about is that nature is a lot sloppier, messier, and worse than we think. There's the old metaphor of the watchmaker god or whatever, that the universe is this highly tuned watch that works perfectly. It doesn't work perfect. There's mess everywhere, but the mess is why it succeeds, I think is the thing that we are starting to learn in a lot of fields. And I think we're going to be last to learn it in engineering. I think we're predisposed to not learn it very well, just from what I see. There's this quote, I just started rereading an older Alan Watts book. And I think at the start of the book, he says, you're only making a mess by trying to put things straight. 
you're trying to straighten out a wiggly world and it's no wonder you're in trouble that we sort of crave these straight lines and crave perfection when it doesn't it's but not as, in harmony but as beings that have evolved from this nature and from this biology why did we become like that i think that's the weird thing is that there are parts of this that are good it's the reason why we have technology precision engineering brought us the airplane and brought us drugs that can save our lives and all these things i think it's just when we get stuck in thinking that's the only paradigm that's when it becomes problematic and that's where the book that i talked about at the end of my talk that's where it, it comes in the ian mcgilchrist book he talks about our two sides of our brain are sort of honed differently and he sees these cultural shifts over time where at times the left brain is more dominant other times the right brain is more dominant and he's essentially just saying that over the last say 500 years we've been moving to this more left brain model of thinking we're more focused on the details we're mo more focused on divisions we think more narrowly we think in terms of symbols and maps we pay less attention to context and pay less attention to emotions pay less attention to the body and more to the brain he calls them ways of attending it's not that one is better or worse they're they're both apply in di different circumstances and they both enable us to do certain things and we wouldn't be what we are without having both capabilities it's just that culturally we tend to overweight the left brain that's the way he sees it i think it i think there's a lot of value to that approach. so in the left brain right brain conversations i know it's easy to say oh left brain is more analytical and the right brain is more creative is that too simple? The book is long and he, I don't know, the first 20% of the book starts with him apologizing, kind of saying everybody he knows thinks he's stupid to write a left brain, right brain book because everybody knows that the simple characterizations that everybody has are wrong. Like when you test them in the lab, this simple model that the left brain is mathematical and the right brain is creative, they break down and that's not how it works. But he sort of explains that even that being true, there are very, very clear differences about how their left brain and the right brain just work. And this is true in all animals. The example that I think drilled at home the most for me, he talks about birds. In a bird, the left brain is the reason a bird is able to pick up a bird seed out of the dirt. It can focus in on the bird or on the seed, see the boundaries of the seed from the world around it control its beak to precisely pick it up. The bird's right brain is able to pay attention to the cat that is stalking it in the periphery. So its phrase uses ways of attending. The, the left brain is paying focused attention. The right brain is paying peripheral attention. And so the left brain cares about the divisions of things, and the right brain cares about, well, how does all of this relate? Is that cat close enough to be a threat to me? Do those bushes look like they're moving in an odd way? that I can't quite describe, but is a threat to me. So it's, he sort of describes it that you can't really think of it as like, well, the left brain is solving the problem. The left brain could be creative in how it figures out how to get the seed out of the dirt. And the right brain could be creative in how it positions the bird to figure out where the cat is. Both sides of the brain would be processing the same signal from its eyeballs, right? So it's almost like which part of the image are you honed in on? Yeah, and there, there's some, I'm less knowledgeable about some of that stuff, but 
some of that is how they know some of these things happen because they know the left eye's imagery goes to the right side. And so there's a delay of communicating that information to the other side of the brain. And there's different experiments they've done to know why it's the left brain that's doing X and the right brain that's doing Y. But to your point, all of the same information is coming in to the brain. Like it's just processing the same information, the same environment in different ways. So it's, you know. I know this is completely off topic. Well, maybe not, but does the left eye's signal go to the right brain and the right eye's signal go to the left brain? I'm pretty sure that's right, at least in birds. I don't have that book in front of me, but I'm pretty sure that's right. Fascinating. So in other words, I could potentially hack my brain by closing one of my eyes? Yeah, there's definitely an experiment somewhere about how that would affect how you do things. Now, just to kind of think about that left brain, right brain, you mentioned in a talk once that there's a communication between the two halves that makes you be able to have a conversation with yourself or to have sort of that observer pattern or the observer because I often wonder about how did my brain that is locked in my skull know that it it can talk to its like there's other entities or invisible entities or yeah I think this part you're talking about is the way and I totally forget what the basis for this is but I do remember the details from the book so the left brain is the Descartes sort of thinking I think therefore I am like I am this being that happens to be living inside my brain, that's kind of the left brain view. Whereas the right brain view is that this is going to probably sound weird to you. It sounds weird to me and it probably sounds weird to the whole audience, but your body is you. Your brain just happens to be along for the ride, but your right brain sees your body as yourself. And that's where some of the weird things where like people have phantom limb senses, like their right brain knows they still have they're still operating there. It still exists because there are sense organs that are telling it that and it believes them. Then the left brain, this this correlates to, well, I there's one person driving up in my brain and that is going to resolve to one true answer about things. So the left brain craves certainty and the right brain knows that it has contradictory sense input. Like when you play tricks on trying to think of like those eye tricks where you've got the line with the arrows going this way and the ones going this way and the line's the same length but it's tricked your right brain is able to know oh those are different length lines because it's like processing this contradictory information it's okay with the there being ambiguity in the world because it deals with it all the time whereas that's the left brain that wants to know okay well is it is it the same length or not let's get out a ruler and go see the left brain has an existential crisis about it exactly yeah so then This leads me to sort of dreams and religion and faith. And I mean, I know this isn't a Jesus podcast, (laughs) but the humans need then to make sense of the universe. Why can't the, the brain just be like, hey, I was born. This is cool. I will exist. And therefore, there will be a beginning, a middle and an end. And I'm cool with that. Yeah. I mean, you're actually touching on one of the pieces that seems to bring a lot of this together is that there's a strong difference in this kind of thinking in the religions of the world. Like the Western religions, the Judeo-Christian tradition is much more left-brained. And the 
Asian traditions are much more right-brained. I think Taoism is in particular the most sort of right-brained thinking. Like it's very, the primary Taoist text, the Tao Te Ching, is basically a book of contradictions. Like it's all kinds of things that kind of don't make sense if you read them one way, but in another sense, they make perfect epic sense. And so I think there's some of that, but it's interesting because you can see the split does not seem to have originated in my mind with like the religions themselves in their origins. It's more in the cultural tradition that built up around them. The Catholic church sort of becoming hierarchical and becoming basically a political power in Europe, in my mind, has some connection to why we ultimately have this very left brain approach to the world now, which is in the talk that I gave last year, the part about the Prussian military, sort of that emerged out of the Enlightenment when societies were transitioning from this religious power model to essentially from a model where you were king because God said you were to a model where you were king because people thought you should be or you deserved to be. And so it created this setup where the government needed to justify itself to the people. And so it needed to accomplish things. And in order to accomplish things, it needed to plan them and administer them. And so like the administrative state and formal organized militaries with you had to serve in the military started forming. That's where like the origins of Prussia is where business schools and compulsory schools, that's where that whole thing comes from. Like the very idea that, well, you would go somewhere to learn what you would need to know. Somebody else has the answers and they're going to give them to you. It's very sort of left brain approach to the world. That's where that all kind of originates. And I think more of the Eastern tradition was was fuzzier. And the Western world has dominated for a couple hundred years. And so that's why we think the way we think. And some of these things just... People in other cultures don't think this way. I wonder if, you know, the brain's fascination, like that comment you made about, I need to get, there's a a gap for me, but there's this other place I need to go to to find the answer. And that really there's then a mystery around that or a, wow, you know, how do they know it? Mm -hmm. Even if you look at talks on TED or... You know, there's always this, when someone expounds knowledge, there's, the brain is fascinated with that and kind of goes into, I think, a bit of a frenzy. Like, how do I relate to this? Why haven't I learned mm-hmm. this? What are the dots? Where's the other line? Oh, mm-hmm. this fits neatly into this other thing I learned. So therefore, now right. there's a different conclusion. And it's like there's a frenzy. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's just my head. I think it's everybody's. One of the things... You know, I'm working on a book around this talk, and one of the things I've struggled with is like how much to make this a personal story versus, you know, a more nonfiction sort of impersonal, just tell the facts sort of thing. Because I've I went through this transition personally. Like like I remember when Ruby on Rails first came out, and I sort of was like, wow, this David Heinemeyer Hansen guy, he's just like working on this project, and he decides. To use this language that has no good web tools, but he sees the language, he likes it, and he's like, I'm going to build this thing. What I've, Basecamp, I think, was what he's building. He's like, I'm going to build this in Ruby, even though there's no tools for that, but I'm going to make them. I'm going to make a framework in the process of building Basecamp. Just like the thought, like, oh, I, I could never do that. I He must be a special kind of person, et cetera, et cetera. And what I've kind of 
come to realize over the past really couple years is that like all that really is is literally doing it like you (laughs) he didn't know how to do it when he started like he literally figured it out as he was doing it nobody knew how to make ruby do web frameworks and it could have been a terrible idea and he could have failed he didn't fail which is why we talk about him but it doesn't mean that he shouldn't have tried like he had a passion that he really liked Ruby and he would prefer to work in that language for his web project. So he did. And <laughs> that's kind of it. It's not, you know, like, oh, if there's not a book out there, it's not possible. I think too often we sort of view like, oh, I've got this hinge in my brain. Mm. I just open up and plop some new information in. I think the challenge is when DHH then does that, how do all our brains relate to that type of doing mm-hmm. and then what mental image do we create not only about him in this case but about ourselves and how we relate to knowledge mm-hmm. because there must be a part of all ruby people now saying some variant of would dhh have done this what would dhh think about this yeah and dhh is like dude i just want to code and do the Le Mans right and, and i'm good I'm <laughs> exactly happy. Yeah. You don't need his approval to do something. I guess one of the the ways I would put it that I've realized is that like the completed thing is its own argument. You know, I've worked on teams before where there's people who just talk and talk and talk about, oh, we should do this thing. I think we should do this thing. And they can't convince people and they they're doomed. If you just do it in whatever form, just go take some time, code something. And so so I did this thing and now look at it. That's a completely different kind of argument because all of the fear and uncertainty are, are gone with like, oh, that's not possible. Now you know what it looks like. Mm. I think we've actually been on our project in Afghanistan introducing pull request-based development. And I think one of the things that has come out of that is the realization that like, oh, I can like do work in a way that might get thrown away but in a way that demonstrates, okay, I think we should do this. And I've tested it out. Here's how it works. And the combination of automated testing and pull requests are kind of trans... I mean, this is for a lot of our audience probably is not going to be as eye-opening, but it's like those two things in combination enable you to do experiment, like evolutionary experimentation, to try something and say, okay, it failed, but the impacts of the failure are zero. Like we can just close the pull request there's no problem. We don't have to put it in production and see that it failed or whatever. And I think taking that a step further, maybe more for our audience, like the chaos engineering type approach takes that even further and says, okay, put everything in production, but make sure you monitor production so well that you know precisely when and where it's failing and you can undo it as quickly as possible, like is even more empowering because then you, you don't see it in a a lab, you don't see the pull request, how it's going to work in the lab. You see how it works in the real world and experiment with it. But yeah, that's a whole nother level. We're not going to teach that yet on our project. I love that statement. The completed, completed, completed work is its own justification. It's the, I, guess. I was yeah. in a conversation this morning with people about value stream mapping and all that. And just taking a process taking a dry erase marker, going to the whiteboard and document and just drawing the steps mm-hmm. from beginning to the end just is its own thing. It's like, oh, okay. So yes, there's all these blank boxes and yes, 
maybe I couldn't get to the end, but you're allowing that brain of yours to say, let me lean into the unknown, the things I can't explain to mm -hmm. create this thing that becomes its own thing. I mean, so much of the challenges we actually solve are really boiled down to communication and code is communication. So like the PR example I'm talking about, you're like, you have this vague vision in your brain about, oh, we could do something differently. It would be better if we use this component or this library, this SQL driver or whatever. And I, I know it would be better. I just feel it. But if you do it, if you just lean into it and code some, I'm a huge fan of like code spike based development where you just go try it for four days or whatever. Take the time, leave gaps in your your schedule to allow to do this and then go experiment with something and just be totally okay with throwing it away if it didn't work. And if it did work, then make the time to figure out how you integrate it into the world. But that's essentially, that code spike is you communicating with the system and with the team some other vision of the world. And I think value stream mapping does the same thing in terms of like how the business works. Like we all have a, we, we all think we work at the same company, but that company looks completely different from everybody's shoes. And value stream mapping is a way to get everybody to communicate about how they see things different. I'm working with a team right now around alpha testing, beta testing, customer migrations, and then go live. And I'm just amazed at, I consider myself a good communicator in the C-suite. I'm an experienced CTO <laughs> type, but I can just see the unraveling of, of what I'm trying to communicate and what I'm saying. It almost happens in slow motion <laughs> where you, your brain just says, this, this shouldn't be happening. This was an easy thing to explain. And the more you mm -hmm. explain it, the more it doesn't land and the more confusing it gets. Mm -hmm. Then it's almost like that mess then turns around and looks at you and is like, well, you are a horrible human because you couldn't explain something right. that was supposed to be simple. What do you do to get past that? I mean, that's a challenge we all deal with. What do you learn from those situations and what do you do next? So I have two answers to that. The first answer is, and my wife just recently accused me of this. <laughs> it was a very hurtful moment, brother. Kath, if Tell you're me. listening... You know how hurt I was. <laughs> Fingers crossed she's listening. <laughs> she's rushing to download my podcast. Right, yeah. No, no, this is actually a super private moment that the whole world can hear and she we'll, won't. We'll edit it out. No, yeah. there's no editing, bro. It's like a, there's an old 97 song where he's talking about some emotional moment. And the song lyric is, I won't tell a soul except the people at the nightclub where I sing. <laughs> That's what you're doing right, right now. <laughs> So my wife recently, we were having an argument. It was aptly because we're at the dawn of an election and this podcast will go out long after the whatever's going to happen. Right, yeah. We took opposing views on a, on a pretty hotly debated issue. Mm -hmm. And my premise for what I thought was very simple. I, I just felt like, okay, if it's X then I, I cannot support Y. So very simple, but supporting X was controversial. So I was doing like, and, I, and I'm sorry to speak in sort of abstract terms, but I, I, could, I don't want to go into what it was. But X was a controversial statement. 
Mm-hmm. And so my wife was like, that's just a dumb thing to say. And for me, it was no, uh, in my logical brain, mm-hmm. you know, the problem is further upstream. So that's what needs to be addressed. And she's like, no, the problem is further downstream. So whatever. But she then makes a statement when things were really heated. And she says, you are a lazy thinker. And I am not going to debate the lazy thinker. And I was just like, what? What are you doing to me right now? Of course, my initial response was, no, I'm a supremely intellectual, amazing, deductive, deconstructive, <laughs> phenomenal, computer science logical, philosophical person. Don't ever say <laughs> I'm a lazy thinker. <laughs> right. But then I realized that I wasn't putting the work into thinking before I was speaking. I was just saying things. Because intuitively, I, know, I knew it was correct. And I knew that intuitively, that what did vibrate with my being. But in terms of communicating it, it was clumsy and it wasn't a clean, well-thought-out argument. So in terms of like a strawman argument, like I put something out there and then she was now debating that. And I mm-hmm. was sitting back saying, okay, I'm going to observe how that goes and then I'm going to make up my mind. And so coming back to my alpha, beta, go live conversation, I think that oftentimes we say things and we want people to understand and believe it. And especially at the CTO level where you, I feel like you write less and you talk more. And -hmm. I'm not saying all CTOs are like this, but a lot of what we do, like you said, is communication. And maybe at the dev level, it's through code and at the senior level, it's through words and inspiring. So I think if I had gone pen to paper, keyboard to Google Doc, and organized my thoughts and written out the plan, I would have taken simple concepts. And instead of trying to defend them against another human who didn't understand what I was saying, I would have fleshed things out on black and white. And then when we speak, and when I communicated it, it wouldn't have been in words land, we would all be looking at this document I created and then debating this third thing as opposed to a just us thing. I wonder sometimes as leaders and as CTOs, the brief, you know, my sister who works for Amazon mentioned, you know, the, the, the press release right. style, everyone's reading. So you're having these arguments with yourself, fleshing things out with yourself Mm-hmm. before you start lazily sort of taking some sort of position when you now mm-hmm. are defending your being to other people. I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is after your conversation with your wife, you realized the weakness of your presentation, but still had strong commitment to the substance of what you were saying, that the substance didn't come through because of how it was packaged. And that if you could have packaged it a different way, the conversation would have gone more successfully. Well, I think that the substance was like the broccoli that your kids don't want to eat. I think packaging is one thing, but Mm -hmm. what I'm trying to say is, and sometimes you can call it half thoughts or or clumsy ideas or or verbal processing, which I think is a way of saying lazy thinking, Mm -hmm. because you're pulling in the other person into your disorganization And because you are perceptive and you're using your ninja skills to read the room, Mm -hmm. you can sort of adjust at its best, its wonderful communication skills and facilitation. Mm -hmm. At its worst, it is just 
unprepared, half lazy ass thoughts. Mm -hmm. And so my wife, after 25 years of marriage, (laughs) said to me, she's done with that. She's not debating that person anymore. And I was very hurt. Mm -hmm. I was very upset with her. And then a day later, I was actually in a coaching session. And as the person was talking to me, I was like, oh, she's right. She's absolutely right. And so this then in my business world then translated into simple concept. It's a hard pill to swallow because uh-huh. I am asking the CEO to change course on something. It does redefine some terms mm-hmm. that we've been using along the way. And I communicated that through a conversation. Here's what I think we should do. We should do alpha internal, all the employees, we test the product. But then we do beta, we invite the customers, a handful of VIP people to try it out. Then we have a migration plan and then we bring everybody in. But there was just the simplicity of that. There were so many unanswered questions that I think if I had spent some time just saying, okay, great, if I have that premise, this is the potential implication. Or I could have just Asked questions. I'm not saying I have to come up with all of it, but I am doing the hard work and I think respecting the other party by saying, I want to be more prepared when I make this case to you. I don't know. I relate to what you're talking about because so I started my career as I worked at a company, a startup for a short time, and it failed. And I ended up going freelance to do work for them. So I sort of got shortcut start to my freelance career. And because I started in freelancing, I always paid really close attention to my hours and I would get feedback from client. Like I remember an early one, a client didn't want to pay for a bug fix, which in retrospect is just absurd, crazy thinking because bug fixes is about half of what the rest of my career was probably spent doing. (laughs) Some of mine, many of other, other people's shops that came before me. But I got in this mindset where the code writing and not just code writing, but good quality code writing was the work. And everything else, emailing the client, oh, I finished this thing, calling the client and talking to them about requirements, that wasn't the work. The work was the code. That was the value. And so I spent a lot of time undervaluing. I wouldn't prepare for a client call and I wouldn't come out of a client call, oh, I should diagram that, send it back to them, and see if they agree mm. with my perception of what that thing is. Over the last several years, kind of the earlier transition I was talking about, just like realize how much time you save if you get that communication right from the start. Like if you don't just blindly assume that you're being understood when you're talking <laughs> and just verify that, you know, I mean, it's everything from in the conversation and working on international projects with a language barrier where a translator is involved actually helps with this because it makes you slow down, listen to what people say in between. But like even in one conversation, just ask questions that verify that the person understood something the same way you understood it. Is the deadline X or such is it Y? Sim- yeah, such a it's simple, so simple, yeah, but it's hard yeah. to do. And it's really hard for people like us to do it, especially if you have this bias like I did that the code is the real work. This is, let's get this meeting out of the way. This is not the important part. Yeah, I worked with an engineering team recently where they were managed as if the code was the work they did and how shocked they were when I started including them in some collaborations. And I know you can code and I know you can address this ticket, but I want to know what you think is the way we should do this. And it was shocking. 
so let's move a little bit to this amazing project you're doing. You move into a new role where someone says to you, we're going to a country to help build the legal back end to the whole mm-hmm. country. And you're like, okay, this sounds awesome. Let's do this. It was, I don't know, you get what you ask for kind of thing. When I was planning to leave Culture Foundry, I was sort of like, had some career aspirations. I had always been kind of a freelancer or worked on small teams. I'd worked with a lot of big corporations, but had never worked in one. And so I was like, I feel like I have a weakness in terms of the way I would, I was wording it for a long time was indirect influence. Like when I'm not just like in charge of my five developers on my team, getting other parts of the organization to move the way I think they need to move through influence and persuasion. I was like, I'm not good at that. I have never done it. And the only way to, I thought to do that was to go join a bigger company. And so that was my intention. And then kind of out of the blue, this project came along and it was so interesting and intriguing. I started spending time with it and thinking about it. And then I kind of realized indirectly that it was the most extreme version of that (laughs) that I was looking for, because it's like, I have so little power on this project. I'm relatively low ranking in the state department world but you know if i can effectively communicate and if i can make persuasive arguments things that i think should happen will happen and i've had a ton of opportunity to do that so that's kind of why i took the project but in retrospect it does look very crazy because it's like this is an enormous project it's just to kind of i know you know but to fill the listeners in so what we're building is We're building version two of a system that was built originally eight years ago. It was originally built just to track the results of criminal trials in Afghanistan. So it was basically a court and prison administration system so that they would know, okay, how many people are in prison for this? How many people are in prison for this? And the main reason the U.S. was funding it was it's the department of the State Department called International Narcotics and Law, which essentially exists to support legal systems in other countries as a way to minimize impacts of crime that becomes international. So things like drug trafficking, human trafficking, terrorism, if they can get just and effective legal systems operating in countries like Afghanistan, then the problem is dealt with locally, essentially. There was the basis of the original project, but over time, they realized that a big weakness of Afghanistan was that the courts are corrupt and ineffective. People don't get good justice when they file a criminal complaint or when they have a lawsuit. So in a lot of places, people would just not use the court system or they end up having to bribe judges to get what they want. And so they expanded it to do what's called case flow management, which is essentially a kind of a business process reengineering idea of how you make a court system run more effectively. So the system we're building basically starts at the moment a crime occurs or a lawsuit is filed, and it manages it through the investigation phase, through court procedures, through appeals processes, and through the Supreme Court, and ultimately manages basically the prison population of who's in what what facility and for how long. So Yeah, there's an enormous number of moving parts. There's dozens of different ministries of the government that we work with that all have to work together on this same piece of software. So there's governance boards that the project we're on has set up to get the different ministries to work together. 
I've since become aware that this is one of the only systems in the world that works this way. Like the U.S. would have a completely different procedure for the police, another procedure for the local prosecution, and probably multiple for them. And the court would have its own system, and then the prisons would have their own system. So there's huge advantages from a software perspective to do it this way, but there's huge political challenges to get all these ministries working together. You know, it's like it's a requirements gathering nightmare when you try to figure out how to make all these things operate the same. So when I came in, one of the very first things I did was try to take a strategy of building kind of a decoupled monolith. So we essentially are treating each ministry as its own module in the software and very tightly controlling how they exchange data with the other modules. So we can almost treat them as independent units, even though they do ultimately have to agree on certain things with how the software works. So that's the gist of what I've been up to. I think I, well, the last time we talked was two years ago, and I was what's called an STTA, short-term technical advisor at that time. We've since turned it into a 30-month contract, and we're about 14 months into that, basically halfway. So yeah, it's been fascinating new chapter in my career it's been a lot of learning a lot of mm. a lot of challenge it's great i'm assuming that some laws of the western world don't apply in the sense that when you're dealing with i think in any country when you're doing something in the public sector like that where you host QA deployment strategies all that stuff probably interferes with like the quickest way to production, right? Yeah, there's all kinds of challenges with regards to regulations within the country. So I'm not sure whether all country, I know under Obama's term, we got an office of the CTO for a while, but Afghanistan, because it was essentially the current government was basically created in 2001, they have some fairly modern ideas. Like there is an organization of the government that is specifically designed for building and hosting software applications. Mm -hmm. So like they are a player in our project and in some ways a competitor because we're kind of doing their job for them. But because the U.S. government is paying for it, not the Afghan government, everybody thinks it's better to have us do it. <laughs> but it's also kind of a political conflict because it's a little bit of a, they know they ultimately have to manage what we do. So they're suspicious of things that we might Wow, interesting. interesting. So we, we have to sort of navigate that. And I suspect that's probably would be the case in many other countries too. It's just the nature of international donor-based development work. We kind of have to learn the law of Afghanistan, basically. Oh yeah, I do right here. Like I have the criminal procedure code of the country. This is a translation. So like we have to know what article 145 means in terms of how the software needs to manage mm. an appeal, which is kind of fun for me a little bit. This is part of the reason I took this project is for a while in college, I considered going to law school and getting into copyright law. I thought that would be a interesting field when I was in school. And I think it would have, but I had left school and got into so much software development, had so much fun doing it. I kind of forgot to ever go to law school. So. It's also got to be interesting. And I imagine this is what SpaceX and Tesla developers feel like where you're building bespoke custom fit glove on a hand software. So you're not thinking, well, how do I abstract this flow so that it can be 
multi-tenanted and you know it's more like hey if in this particular case there's this exception then good we're just going to code it yeah exactly one of the things i've found really odd about this project is that in the past i would have approached a lot of problems where it's like there's a buyer build discussion you always have and it would come into like third-party libraries we would use so for example like calendar selection we need to select a date and a time that the crime occurred. So we're using Viewtify and there's some controls that do that. There's some NPM packages we could use. But Afghanistan has two legal languages, Dari and Pashto. Dari is kind of a variant of Farsi, which is spoken in Iran, but very few computer tools support Dari and even fewer support Pashto. So we're kind of presented with this problem all the time where it's like, well, if we use that third-party thing, then we need to patch it with all these language tools. So we have made the choice a lot of times just to like, well, let's go look at the source code for that thing, understand how fundamentally how they did it. Is it hard for us to build our own and then build our own? And we've ended up with, I think at this point now, we have like 30 really low level controls. Like we have different kinds of text field editors, date fields that will switch from the solar Islamic calendar to the Gregorian calendar back and forth and like all these tools. And at the time, like as a CTO for a long time, every one of those, I would have been on other projects just like, no, it's too much work to build our own. Like that would be stupid. But tooling these days has gotten so good that a lot of these things are like four or five days of effort initially, couple days of debugging, couple weeks down the road. And then they become this massive resource that solves all kinds of problems throughout the project. We don't have developer communication problems about, oh, when you're dealing with this kind of date, you do this. And this mm, is, mm. you don't have to deal with those in policy anymore because the code is solving the mm. problem for you. I'm looking back and going, man, I, I bet there's a lot of places in the past where telling somebody, you know, I know it looks hard to build your own thing of that, but it's only going to take a day. Mm. So go ahead and do it. I think I would have. I think and this is back to the degeneracy thing, we have this mentality of dry that's like, well, somebody else already built some component, so don't repeat that work, right? So reuse whatever you can reuse. The problem is you've just increased complexity because now you have a dependency on some third-party control that in turn might have other dependencies, and you don't really know what that looks like. And if you're talking about a day of work to build it the first time, you're probably talking about a day of work to rebuild it if you did it wrong. And so you have this known quantifiable impact of how hard that's going to be. And I think just looking back, I was always in so much of a hurry to say, oh, well, this one takes five minutes. This one takes eight hours. Let's definitely go with the five minutes choice and not really thinking through the second order impacts of, well, Mm. how's that going to affect how easy it is for us to upgrade to the next? Mm. That's kind of a side effect on this project. We've known from the beginning that we have to hand this off to this agency I was talking about. And so we've wanted to like really tightly control, like we don't want a mess at the end. We want to know, okay, we're using this dependency and this is why. When it needs to be upgraded, this is how you do it. So every time we do, so Vue, we're using Vue.js on the project and Vue 3 was just released. So we know we're going to upgrade, but we know we're not going to upgrade until we have the time to really closely document, okay, we ran into this problem. This is how we addressed it. This is the steps we took to upgrade so that when Vue 4 comes out, that documentation is there and ready to say, this is where you're likely to run into problems and this is what we did Mm. to solve them. That approach has made us really, really 
avoid dependencies because we know we have to document mm, them. And because, and this is what I, I always scratch my head with this, but when I talk to founders, especially founders who want to pause development, I always tell them, well, your code is going to age. And it's not because it gets crusty on the disk drive because no <laughs> one's loading it. It's because all the thousands of dependencies that we used to build this, that's mm-hmm. not standing still. The dependency monster is the thing that is, stays very much alive. And a lot of our debt, technical debt, a lot of our work is really to feed that monster because, mm-hmm. yes, you had to make a simple fix, but when you try to compile the code, the other package that you were including is now a version later. And then when you start freezing those versions and you're starting to depend on, uh, well, now you're just kicking the can down the road because, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's always it's, funny. It's an unwinnable battle. I think this goes back to that right brain thing. Like you want the freezing dependencies thing is this need for certainty. Like, oh, I have control over my deployment. Docker's the same thing. Like immutable builds. We want that because they're controlled. They are controlled, but the world is not. So like you may have a perfectly built Docker container in five years that's that has an embedded dependency of some massive security hole that is still an open security hole inside that Docker container. And it is not really immutable if you start considering its interactions in the real world. So you can't really ever cordon off something and push pause on it. The world keeps moving on. I think this is so true for startups too, because startups, the world moves faster for startups than the rest of society. That can be a benefit because it can be, you're used to switching, pivoting more often, but it can also be like this, you see it as your main problem to solve. How do we control our code quality? How do we build this right? I think a lot of the startups I've worked with in retrospect, I would have actually been sloppier and build things messier and just been more eager to like throw it away and said, yeah, we have this shitty system that's got all of this mess in it and it's a Frankenstein's monster, but I'm going to bet Facebook has some really shitty PHP code running in it. (laughs) I was about to tell, I was about to say. (laughs) You just characterize thousands of startups who are built on PHP and then have the first Ruby on Rails conversation. Exactly. I can't tell you how many conversations I was in where I had to tell my developers that that shitty PHP code is paying your salary. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. So in considering that fast pace of startups, considering the five minutes versus five days mm-hmm. approach, do you think that the artificial urgency, the artificially urgent system that is on top of what nature really wants to be is our economics, our economics system, where it's got to be done cheaper, you can't spend the extra 10 bucks. Is it because we have the scarcity mentality, you could invest the five grand to -hmm. do it a certain way, but you'd rather spend 50 bucks because $4,950 can go towards an extra Google ad spend. I mean, I think the short answer to that is context, back to the left brain, right brain thing, right? The right brain is always aware of the context. So I think the thing that we miss in startups when you focus on the speed of things, 
you miss the context of like what actually matters and why and being more into, I think I talked about this on our podcast before that book adapt, which he talks about the Palchinsky principles, which is the third one has to do with making sure you're aware of the experiments you're making, basically being in harmony with the world. So when I'm talking about the five minutes versus the five days, there are some situations where, oh, what we're talking about is some one-off corner of the system that like, oh, this customer, this salesman, one salesperson thinks this is a good idea and we want to run an experiment on this particular approach and we want to experiment with the code in some way and this third-party component, we can plug it in in five minutes and it will let us do that, but it will create mess. You can kind of take that context and say, okay, that might be a place where really terribly built experiment that we hardly even test is pro- it might be fine. But if what you're talking about is like the literal, it's page one of your investor deck and it's the technology that your whole system is built on, build it yourself you know that's going to be a long-term component and you know how it's going to work and you want to own it and make sure it works well. So I, th- I don't think you can answer that with a rule. I think you have to take the context into account and say, okay, this is an important tool. I th- think bring it back to the example in Afghanistan, like this system is used by the U.S. government in the context of peace negotiations and all kinds of other, other English-speaking international donors are going to use the system. So it needs to work well in English, but it's fundamentally going to be used 90% of the time in Dari and Pashto. So having really good tools to translate English, Dari, and Pashto and make that process seamless is worth the investment. And so we have invested a lot of time in custom components and avoided third-party tools. Like I think we even started to implement our own solar calendar conversion function for a while because the whatever we were using was problematic. And so those are worth that effort. But things that we might do for a demo, we might build really sloppily in. I love that emphasis on context as one is marrying degeneracy with unnatural optimization and straight lines. Mm -hmm. Because I think that in our roles as CTO, we need to put ourselves in a position where context is presented, context is understood, context is promoted. And as someone then who understands the technology components, the business direction, the long-term value to then Mm -hmm. be able to say, well, given that, this is a five-minute task and should be one and we should go find the package and we shouldn't be building this Mm -hmm. versus the five-day task, which is, this is so critically important to us that I know you think that it shouldn't cost us $50,000 to build this, but now it's my job to say, mm-hmm. well, this is why the 50 grand is an essential spend on this task. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I got asked in an interview, actually the interview that I almost accepted before starting this project, the person asked me, what's your management philosophy? That's one of those questions that like you should have an answer for. A lot of people ask that and there are like known management philosophies. And I was like completely unprepared for the question. Never thought about that before. What's my management philosophy? But what came out of my math was empathy and context. And I explained, I was like, I think I have two jobs as a manager of a team. 
two jobs. One is to make sure the team is aware of the context in which they're operating. Like they need to understand not just the CEO asked for X, like the task is X, but they need to understand the CEO's motivations, the business's vision, what's going on, what the market opportunity is and what we're doing because the CEO might ask for something stupid. And when they realize, oh, that's a stupid request, technically speaking, and we can solve the business vision better with task Y, the team kind of needs to be empowered to understand that. And they can't do that unless you have told them, communicated to them what the context is. And then the other piece, empathy, is, is I think what I explained in the interview is like, well, I've been a CEO type person. I've been a developer with a crazy CEO and I've been a manager. So I've been in all these environments. I know what it's like to be there. I know what a death march is like and how to avoid it and have empathy. But I also know what it's like to be in a position where the developers just can't work fast enough and you can't satisfy the investors because you're not moving fast enough. And so understanding both of those things and communicating between them, I think, is what my Mm. approach to management kind of is. And I think the interviewer was really taken aback by the context piece. Well, that's not a management philosophy, but I think for me it is. It's like your whole job is to make sure people understand what the vision is. Higher level of leadership, you have to set the vision too. But I think as a manager, most of the time, your job is to just make the team aware. I think the empathy part also drives that need to provide context because you want to bring the best out in people. And so if you're post-industrial age where it's the knowledge age and it's knowledge workers and you need to be able to know when people need to know certain things because you want to unlock certain gifts, skills. Mm -hmm. Yeah, being aware of why your team is there. Why does your senior engineer want to work on this team? Why does the intern that just started why did they pick your company? Like understanding those things to know what they're trying to get out of it. Cause it's a two way market. Like you're trying to satisfy some customer, but people have a choice in how they spend their time. They don't check their brain in at the door and let you use it from nine to five. Which is which and is then check it out. Yes, which is how <laughs> which is often not only how they are managed, but how they view themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, I struggle with that to this day. It's like, mm-hmm. am I providing value if I just think about something? Mm-hmm. Or yeah, am it's, I it's am I so writing... hard to bill for the time in the shower? So hard, dude. And that is the most expensive time. <laughs> it should be. So good, man. I feel like we've solved a couple problems. Every, we solved everything. When are we going to see Aaron's book? We had our seven CTOs group meeting yesterday, and Patty asked me how that's going, and I was like, she because I had made a goal for this talk, I was like, well, I need to get a couple chapters written. So I do some time to think and spend on the book. And I said I was going to make two chapters. And so she asked if I did it. And I was like, no, I just made a mess. What I've been doing is just, I think this is maybe healthy. I'm just writing. I have a a giant stream of text. In Ulysses. Yeah. I'm gradually, you mentioned you're starting, you're working in Google Docs. I'm gradually trying to move the polished stuff over there to start sharing it with other people and stuff. But I think one of the things I'm struggling with a little bit is who the audience is Mm. and which parts to present. I think we've been talking about degeneracy in this call. We haven't really, I think some of the audience hasn't seen the talk that I gave. So we should talk about what that is for a minute. (laughs) So essentially where the book comes from is 
after a company I was managing failed, I realized that the reason we failed is that, this is, I mentioned this just a minute ago, that we weren't moving fast enough. It was a real estate data company. We're moving into new markets and we could not adapt our current code to work in the new markets quickly enough. And as a result, we just couldn't grow fast enough to get interest of big enough companies to buy our data. Like our data would be valuable if it was nationwide, but we were limited to about four states at the time. And the fifth, sixth, seventh states were really slowing us down. So when the company ended, I was like, this seems like something that has a solution in the books. How do you make your code adaptable? And what I found is that when engineers think in terms of adaptation, they don't mean what I meant. I think the example that jumps out to me is adaptive websites. Do you remember when that was a thing? You would write some code that says, if OS equals Safari, then redirect to mobile.website or whatever. <laughs> That's adaptive engineering land. And there's a lot of examples of that. An adapter in the gang of four patterns is the same kind of thing. You have thing X and you make an adapter for it. Thing Y, you make an adapter for it. But there's no way to think about, okay, I don't know how, what change is coming. How do I prepare myself for that? So I started to do research and I came across evolutionary biology, which I have no experience in, and found that in the last basically 20 years, there's a lot of research going into this concept called degeneracy, which is a sibling of redundancy. So redundancy is using the exact same thing in multiple instances. So I have a a right arm and a left arm, they're fundamentally the same thing. They can both serve the same purpose. Degeneracy is an example of things that have different structures being able to produce the same outcome. So the example in the original paper was writing instruments. So you can write your name with a crayon, you can write it with a pen, you can write it with a pencil. They're different functions or different structures, but they have the same function. They produce the same outcome. And essentially what the research has shown is that this idea of degeneracy is how evolutionary biology adapts over time. Because it answers the problem of the most successful species genetically have to be robust, which means they have stable genetic makeup. Their genes don't randomly vary with each generation. So they have stable traits, it's called. The problem is that random variation is how you evolve complexity in the first place. And they know that complexity is a prerequisite to being able to be robust. Like we have very complex immune systems as we're learning with the pandemic. That's why developing a vaccine takes so long. And to get that complexity, you have to have all this random variation. You have to have mess. So the problem has always been, well, robustness and variation are at odds with one another. So in theory, you have this evolutionary cycle that must stop at some point because you get robust enough or you get complex enough to be able to be robust, but then you're also not evolvable. And so what they're realizing is that part of the complexity is having all these inborn degenerate solutions. So basically your immune system has functionality, it has ways to do things that are already ready for a future that doesn't exist yet. Mm. And they're just there in a wasteful way. It's definitely wasteful from an engineering perspective, but it's powerful. And so I, I started looking at that and trying to figure out, okay, how does that apply to software? How does it apply to the world? And the more research I did, the more I realized, oh, wow, this is actually everywhere. I read a lot of books on business and management and this idea that's been very popular since the 80s, increasingly so, in the last 15 years with Agile, this idea of pushing management decisions lower down in an organization. 
basically making <coughs> autonomous units lower in the company. If you do that, you create redundant decision-making. Like the traditional military model is the boss makes the decisions and everybody below implements it. If you've read David Marquette's book, Turn the Ship Around, about the, I think it's the USS Phoenix submarine, he used the exact opposite approach where he said, I'm going to push decision-making down into lower levels of the submarine, which meant that it's possible for people to make different decisions at different times. It's possible to make conflicting decisions, but it's also it's an example of degeneracy because in an emergency, there's more than one way to solve a problem because different units are enabled or empowered to solve that problem. Amazon sort of pizza team model is the same kind of thing. I remember talking to, I forget who it was, but different CTO, their company was organized such that they were not allowed to have any dependencies on any other teams, even if that meant they would rebuild the other team's tools. So like you had the microservices team that managed the user database and your team needed some way to track users. If that service didn't provide what you would need, you would be allowed to build your own user service temporarily to do that. That's an example of degeneracy because now you end up with two ways to solve user management in the company. And later on, one of them may be more prepped to solve some they're not redundant. They're not functionally identical because they were made by different teams with different motivations. One of those may work better in some later version. They're more prepared for unexpected, unforeseen circumstances than they would be if they centralized all in one place. So back to what you're talking about, the pandemic supply chain problems, like ending up with only one supplier in Lombardy, Italy for nasal swabs, turns out to look really good in the short term, but terrible in the long term. Whereas other supply chains that are more degenerate ended up being much more robust. So I'm still trying to, in terms of writing the book, still trying to figure out how to structure this, to write it all into what we all need to learn as software developers. I think there's so many ways it started to influence my work that I'm, that's a moving target, constantly changing how I think about how to approach different problems. I'm not sure where it's going to end up. And I think that's the problem. Mm. Somebody gave me advice once that, because I've been doing research for the book, and somebody said, you know, you're ready to write when all of the books you're reading start to point at each other. We're like, oh, this book is saying I should read more about this idea. And it's like, well, I've already read that book, and that book pointed this one. When it starts to go in a circle, you know you're ready. And that's basically happened, but now it's the hard part, actually putting text in an, in an editor. Yeah, because I think the challenge is... What is the one or two problems that a reader is going to have that mm -hmm. your book is the answer to? Has someone say, oh, you, you know, you should read Aaron's book. Having been in your audience since watching you incubate this talk and nurture this talk, I think it's just supremely valuable for CTOs to know this stuff and then to be the educators in how this stuff works because it appeals. The scientific side of it appeals to us. The philosophical direction appeals to us. And then there's the stereotype out in the world, which I think a lot of CTOs perpetuate, which is a topic you and I have talked about as well, which is <laughs> seeing software projects as construction projects versus mm -hmm. the garden. Right. And I always thought that that was such a profound distinction and a, a paradigm shifting way to look at our projects and our products mm -hmm. that to this day, I, I 
I use that. I help CEOs see it that way. I help my team see it that way. I think you're right, though. The audience is me five, six years ago, thinking I had sort of climbed to this level of, oh, I know, I know this stuff. I have put all the things in my brain and I have reached the level of I've solved these problems. I know how to do this thing. I now know this many languages, programming languages, and I know the following chords in Vim that make me fast to type. Thinking that that was an achievement at all is sort of like, I think the book should be a just like a reality check to realize when you're thinking that you are shooting yourself in the foot in a whole bunch of different ways that are actually harming your experience with your team, your experience with your wife. <laughs> yeah, I mean, all these things are just lessons I've learned, which is what, kind of why I mentioned, like, I'm just not the type of person to, to write a memoir. And it just doesn't feel like it should be a memoir. But so much of the book is just the journey I have been on the last six years or so to figure some of this stuff out for myself. You're right that the science is kind of this Trojan horse. Because I, if you remember the way I described this at the beginning, I was the engineer going, oh, there's information that's not in my brain. How do I make something adapt? How do I plug that adaptability skill into my brain and then come to learn, oh, thinking that there's an adaptability skill that I plug into my brain is the problem. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's interesting. And um, I would say this question of you can't figure out who the book is for is probably going to be a mind-blowing breakthrough when you have the aha moment, like, okay, I, cause it's almost like you're branching and piecing and things together and you're, you're in this world and you don't realize you're standing right in front of the person you're writing this for, but you can't see it. But when mm -hmm. you see it, you'll be like, of course, mm -hmm. I'm trying to think about like Daniel Kahneman's book, you know, thinking fast and slow. It's, there's nothing really in that title that makes me think, oh, this book is for me. Mm -hmm. And thinking fast and slow is a, okay, think fast, think slow. But then it's in that subtitle, right? And I think your talks and the way you've titled your talks have got some, I mean, very attractive, I forget what the subtitle was to the last talk, but the it's all in that subtitle. Hubris of the engineer or something like that. Yeah. Wow. I think that's probably the big message is that hubris is kind of the problem that we all tend to have. I worry, though, that people get defensive with that. When you start with, oh, you have hubris as an engineer, people get defensive. But it's true. I, I see it in decisions I made over time. It's a problem. I'm seeing the word degenerate. There's a whole scientific paper, scientific article or whatever. There's a whole article about that. The term has always meant what I described it to mean in the, in the biology sense. It has a different meaning in physics. I forget what it is. But the colloquial meaning is evolutionarily backwards and stupid and dumb. And the, the author of this article is basically saying, we have missed this. Even evolutionary biologists have missed this because nobody wants to research something called degeneracy. Like it just sounds wrong. Well, and then also, <laughs> if you think about your book title and the way you position it, I mean, you have a golden opportunity to use a word that no one is using. Yeah, I could just kill on SEO. You will I... absolutely. Yeah. What was that book on degeneracy? Uh, yeah, Aaron right. Longwall. <laughs> yeah. The Degenerate CTO. 
Yeah, the degenerate CTO. I thought about titling one of my talks in a trolling fashion as like, why you need to write more degenerate code or something like that. And no, that's not true. I, I gave a talk at a Go meetup called Go is a degenerate language, and that's why you should like it. And that was pretty well received, but that's a small Go meetup. <laughs> <laughs> You're huge in the GoLang community. Although Someday. that community is Someday. growing hard. Are you still doing Go? Yeah, the, our, this project in Afghanistan's in Go. It's actually been a controversy a little bit. The team that we work with is like, why aren't you writing it in Java? And I was like, oh, because it's not 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if there is a, in that environment, are you at liberty to say, like, how are they hosting this? That's a controversy. There, there are actually laws in Afghanistan that say it has to be hosted. They imply it has to be hosted in the country. But in-country hosting is a major risk mm. for a system like this. We were on a call recently, hour and a half into this call, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night, my time, hour and a half into the call and some guy's talking and just disappears for a moment, comes back and says, sorry, I disappeared. The power has been out here all day and my phone battery just died and I had to switch to my plug-in battery or whatever, but I can't, it's too dark, so I couldn't see where it was. And <laughs> I mean, this is in Kabul. The power goes out for, you know, several hours fairly often. And so it's tough to build a data center in that environment. So we, we're pushing them to use some sort of cloud-based hosting and we're developing it to be cloud-friendly. But the question of exactly where it's going to be hosted when we're done is not yet answered. And then also with languages like Go, is there suspicion that it's a Google incubated language or? Not really. The real opposition to it is the traditional one you would expect that, oh, there's not any developers who know that here. And my answer to that is, well, it's a two-year project. Just ask me again in two years if anybody knows it. But also the reason we chose it is for simplicity. Like we've actually had a very junior heavy team, partly with this in mind to make sure we're developing something that you can onboard new people really quickly on. And I think Go is great for that. This is another example like the build your own custom components thing. A lot of developers will come in from a PHP background or for Ruby on Rails background and think, oh, this Go stuff is, that's what the senior engineers use. You know, that's like compiled language. I, I don't know how to do that. But it's amazing how all the tooling, the compiler is your friend, ultimately. Like it <laughs> stops you from writing things that don't actually work and addresses that sooner it embarrasses you before you get embarrassed by a PR so or a failing test. And it's much so people have been very fast to learn it. Everybody has said, I thought learning Go was going to be a problem. Learning Vue, we're using a lot of front end, like it's a, it's a huge app with a lot of screens. So there's a lot of kind of complexity in the Vue system. We've had several different developers say, yeah, learning the Vue stuff was harder than learning the Go stuff. Some of them came from React. So there's transition there, but most of it is just the actual complexity of the app. And are your junior devs all sourced in the States? Well, sort of. So we have we have two teams, essentially. So I mentioned this, this is version two. We're replacing an existing system. So there's a team that's in Kabul that is managed somewhat locally. It used to be locally, but he's since moved out to Dubai for there's been some embassy restructuring. So how many staff are there has been shifting around. So... I have a guy who manages the team in 
Kabul maintaining the old system, but we will be very soon onboarding that team to work with us on the new system. And that's sort of step one of the transition because then their team will then train the Afghan government developers. So their team is a mix of senior and junior developers. So we've kind of had this gradual phase in. So we started with senior engineers building a sort of foundational platform. We ramped up the team, brought in actually some interns who we then graduated to full-time development. And then we'll do the handoff to the Kabul team Mm -hmm. and then the handoff to the Afghan government operated and salaried people. So it's not in your interest or it's not really in your longer term interest to incubate and train developers in Kabul. That's the other company, right? Yeah, it's there's no business reason for our team to do that. In fact, the way contractually it's envisioned, they're being paid at Afghan government pay scales. Mm-hmm. So the hope, and who knows how likely it actually is, was that is that they would actually then become employees of the other government entity. So when the Afghan government actually takes it over, it might not be them training their counterparts, it might be them going to work for the Afghan government. I know historically in international development projects, that's not a sure thing like that. It's generally better to work for a government contractor than to work for the government in a country like Afghanistan because there's so much uncertainty and who's going to be in charge and politics, but they will have, you know, a job ready to go basically if they jump ship. Aaron. Yeah. I think the introduction is done. (laughs) So let's start talking. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get past this banter stage and and let's get to the meat and potatoes. To the real stuff. (laughs) The steak, as you you say. Yeah. Let's get to, get to the steak. (laughs) Well, this has been fun. I've, thanks for having me on. I always enjoy talking with you. It's been a while since you've been to Portland, and I'm sure it will be a while still, but sometime we got to get back together. I'm sad. I'm really sad. I'm starting to really, really miss the just meeting up, having drinks. And now I reflect on how willy-nilly I made those decisions. Like, oh, I feel like seeing them again. I'm going to book yeah. a flight and boom, I'm there, you know. Right. Now it feels like I have to book foreign travel. Just, I mean, we're going to go yeah. to Hawaii soon and it feels like we're flying to yeah. Afghanistan. Right, yeah. <laughs> when are you going? We are going on Sunday. Oh, wow. I'm excited for you. That sounds Thank like you. a good yeah, time I'm excited to get about that. out of here. Well, have a good trip. Thanks, brother.